I have recently rediscovered novels. I hadn't exactly forgotten about novels. I just sort of forgotten that I could read them, that, that it was an option available to me. Between work and family and the occasional need for sleep, I was managing newspaper articles, the odd magazine column, and not much else. Then, a few weeks ago, I had a free day with nothing on the horizon except for a load of laundry or two. So I cleared off the sofa, sat myself down, and settled into a real-life, honest-to-goodness novel, ready for some delicious escapism for a trip into a different world. Here is the world I read about. A post-apocalyptic dystopia. (laughs) The earth scorched and almost uninhabitable. This world is divided into huge domed municipalities owned and governed by corporations called multis. A few small free towns protected from the horrible elements by raps. And then the vast majority of land called the glop in the raw, deadly air ruled by martial law. Parts of the glop, I read, were under domes, but the system had not been completed before government stopped functioning. Every quadrant was managed by the remains of the old UN, the eco-police. After the two billion died in the great famine and the plagues, they had authority over earth, water, air outside domes and wraps. Otherwise, the multis ruled their enclaves, the free towns defended themselves as they could, and the glop rotted under the poisonous sky, ruled by feuding gangs and overlords. This was not exactly the escapism that I had had in mind. The novel is He, She, and It by Marge Piercy. It was actually lent to me by a West member who knows that Piercy is one of my favorite poets. Her novels are a little bit of an adjustment from her more lyrical poetry, although I'm enjoying this one. There's a good plot about a woman trying to find her family and her place in the world, but the backdrop of the book, so far at least, is this horrific world, this nightmare of what our world could become. And I have to tell you, I am not usually a nightmare kind of person. My favorite author is Anthony Trollope, with his rolling hills, misbehaving but lovable vicars, and little dramas of human nature. Jane Austen is another favorite, and her modern-day equivalent, Eleanor Lippmann. When I want to branch out, I read a good Richard Russo or perhaps a Crime Caper by Donald Westlake. Dystopia isn't usually my thing. I've never quite understood why I should spend my free time thinking about the horrible things that haven't and won't happen when there are plenty of horrible things that could and do happen. I would rather hang out in vicarages and sip tea. Something about this book has grabbed me, though. Something about the vision that it presents. An image of violence, of environmental despair, of corporate takeover. Perhaps it's because the world is filled not with aliens or evil magicians, 
but with computers, corporations, and gangs. This is a dystopia that seems, I am sorry to say, not impossible. I am perhaps especially aware of the possibility that our world is going very wrong this week, as I have been following the news of the shootings in Fort Hood and then in Orlando. Violence, and particularly gun and workplace violence, is an ongoing problem in America. Indeed, we have the highest rate of gun violence of any developed country in the world. So it is not, I suppose, anything new to hear these horrific reports. But somehow I find myself particularly affected by the news of Fort Hood. My heart breaks for this new casualty of the war, for the military families who are torn apart yet again, for the many people here in the district at Walter Reed who surely knew both the shooter and perhaps the victims, for the senseless destruction of lives, and I think a little more tearing apart of the fabric of the country. It can be scary to live in this world, just as it is, not to mention imagining that someday it will descend into the dystopian vision of Marge Piercy's novel. But while it's important to acknowledge the possibility of that reality, Part of our function as a religious community is to offer an alternative vision, sort of like those free towns in Marge Piercy's novel, the alternatives to the glop and the domes, to tell our own story of what we want the world to look like and to begin to create the way forward, the way we can make our vision a reality. In a liberal religious community like ours, it can be difficult sometimes to articulate exactly what our story is. We don't have a defining text that lays it all out for us. What we have instead is all of our experiences, the coming together of human understanding and human revelation and human vision. That's an incredible gift, being able to draw on all of those sources But you know, I like having things well organized, too. (laughs) So I have been excited about the themes that our congregation is exploring this year, here in platform services, in adult education workshops, and in our Sunday school. Together, these themes tell the vision of ethical culture, the story that this community believes in. This month, our theme is Abundance and Sufficiency as we explore what we need to sustain ourselves and to keep the world sustained, to allow all people to have enough. Sustainability has become one of those hip words recently, as we look for everything from sustainable clothing to sustainable coffee, but it has behind it a deeper meaning. The root word, sustain, has definitions that range from give support or relief to and keep up or prolong to nourish, supply with sustenance. Being sustainable, then, means being able to continue on. That is, a sustainable earth is one that isn't destroyed by our inhabitants of it. But it also speaks to the idea of being actually nourishing. Imagine a world that isn't just not destroyed, but is actually fed by our presence in it. 
a country that is nourished by the way we live our lives, a community whose spiritual and physical well-being is increased by its members' choices. In common parlance, though, sustainable does often refer to the earth and how we keep it from needing those domes and wraps because of total environmental destruction. The truth is, the way forward is not a mystery. We know the answers, and we've known them for some time. My husband and I have started getting Northern Exposure, that early 90s series about life in small-town Alaska on Netflix. Did any of you watch that the first time around? Yeah, it's cute. We just saw the episode where one character decides to join Greenpeace, starting a life as an environmental activist. He gives an impassioned going-away speech, of course, to the whole town gathered there, telling everyone who's staying that they have work to do too, watching their emissions, keeping an eye on hazardous chemical spills, bringing their own grocery bags to the store with them. I have to say it was a little disheartening to realize that I must have heard that speech when I first watched the show, at least 15 years ago, and to know that it was this past year that I finally managed to keep cloth grocery bags in the trunk of my car so that I could stop using paper ones. I care about the environment. I am one of those lefty progressives, and it took me 15 years to get to cloth bags. Well, I'm getting better. I have cloth bags in my trunk now. I'm eating less meat. I'm seriously considering getting a clothesline. There are things we can do, things that I know many of you do do, that can help us to get to a more sustainable kind of life. That's the idea behind the aptly named book, Sustainable Planet, Solutions for the 21st Century, edited and compiled by the Center for a New American Dream, and published by Beacon Press, an arm of the Unitarian Universalist Association. Bringing together essays by environmentalists, scientists, authors, public servants, and captains of industry, the book offers concrete ways that we can, individually and collectively, change our effect on the world. There's the local food essay, the sustainable clothing essay, the policy changes for healthcare essay. It's a great collection, actually, and I recommend it to you. Where I really get inspired, though, is in the parts of the book that address not only policy and lifestyle changes, but internal changes. What we need to do to change our own understanding of sustainability, of abundance, of, as entrepreneur Vicki Robin puts it, enoughness. Robin defines enoughness as a stance of material sufficiency and spiritual affluence, a transformative way of living that liberates humans to live in wholeness and balance. Robin's field is how we spend our money, but I think her definition can apply to almost any aspect of our lives, individually and together. After all, living in wholeness and balance sounds like a pretty good deal to me. It also helps me to shift the conversation, at least in my own head. Too often, when I think about sustainability or about what I have to do to make the world sustainable, my head is full of shoulds and mustn'ts, full of guilt and nervousness about doing it right. And to be honest, full of regret. After all, isn't it more convenient to just use the bags at the grocery store? 
And won't I miss having turkey sandwiches for lunch? All of these things to remember, all of these lifestyle changes, what a pain they are. The conversation, for me, can too easily take on the tone of insufficiency. My own insufficiency, my own inability to follow all these rules, and the insufficiency of the life that the rules present to me. This is where I think the dystopian vision could be helpful because it presents a stark possibility, the end result if everyone felt this way and we all decided that living sustainably was just too much of a pain in the neck. But as we think about telling our stories, about painting a vision of what we want, I am drawn much more to this idea of enoughness, to recasting our understanding of what makes a good life. And the truth is, many of us have had to recast that understanding anyway. The jobless rates are daunting, especially with the, when those who are underemployed or who have just given up looking are factored in. For families and individuals whose resources have suddenly taken a nosedive, there is no choice but to change their understanding of what they need both to survive and to have a rich and fulfilling life. And for some folks, of course, survival is the most important question. And supporting that survival through a public social safety net is certainly part of my value system, part of my understanding of the good life. But what about the good life for those of us who have enough for, for survival, enough, in fact, to dress ourselves reasonably well, to adorn our houses with things that make us happy, to eat not just for fuel but for pleasure, and who perhaps struggle with how to do all these things while also honoring the need for sustainability, who struggle with how to have the good life and be good. This is where I turn again to that idea of enoughness, of finding plenty in our lives. And so I wonder if we, and if I, can begin to see the call for sustainable living from a perspective of abundance. If I can change my thinking about it to understand that I'm not giving up the convenience of paper bags, but gaining the convenience of cloth bags, whose handles never break, which won't rip if the cans are too heavy, which, if I choose brightly patterned ones, can add a little lift to my day. If getting a clothesline and trying to favor it over using the dryer isn't about feeling guilty that dryers use so much energy, although they do, but about enjoying the smell of line-dried clothing, getting that extra bit of exercise, taking the clothes out and back in again, feeling, perhaps, that I'm actually in one of those Jane Austen novels that I say I love so much. This line of thinking, the idea that we can look at sustainable living from a place of abundance instead of deprivation, extends not just to environmental sustainability, but to sustainability in our own lives, too. Vicki Robin, that author who writes primarily about financial sustainability, offers a fascinating equation for figuring out how our spending relates to what she calls hours of life energy. She invites people to consider whether they find fulfillment from their purchases and whether the expenditure is in line with their values. 
she's trying to get at the heart of what we spend money on and why, and to invite us to imagine alternatives to the consumer mentality that pervades America. Miss Robin lives an intentionally frugal life, but one that she finds to be rich with enjoyment, company, pleasure, hobbies. It's interesting to read her accounting of her own expenditures, which she lays out in the book, and to imagine how her admittedly extreme version of sustainable financial living might relate to my own circumstances. When, for instance, can my family choose free activities on the weekend, like the playground or the zoo, and what does that allow us to do with the money we might have spent going somewhere else? Can we make choices that are in line with our values and that give us joy? It feels like a chance to change the conversation again, from choosing things because we can't afford the alternative to choosing things because we know how we want to positively spend our money. It feels, I guess, like a chance to approach sustainability from, a, from that perspective of abundance instead of deprivation, to working toward a simpler life, not because I don't want to mess up the earth, but because the simpler life is more joyful and more fulfilling. For me, the distinction is an important one. Perhaps it's rooted in my own human selfishness. The attitude of abundance gives me the sense of living into a vision of my own life, of creating something I want for myself instead of depriving myself for the sake of others. It allows me to claim happiness, to make choices that add to my happiness instead of choices that are led by guilt or fear. And for me, that movement toward joy and fulfillment means that the choices themselves are more sustainable, more likely to succeed. The positive reinforcement I get from beautifully smelling laundry or from living my personal fantasy as a character from Sense and Sensibility is much more likely to lead to continued behavior than the quick escape from guilt I find in not using the dryer. As a religious community, I hope that we can embrace this positive reframing, this idea of how to find a life that is both more sustainable and more joyful. We already make choices here that stand in contrast to the consumerism we face. Believe me, spending your Sunday night at a membership meeting and potluck is not advertised on any major cable channel, and you cannot buy the feeling at Walmart helping each other to raise our children with ethical values, lending a hand when someone is sick or in need, getting together for lunch with other retired folks and sharing creative ventures together. These are all just a little bit countercultural, and they are all very sustainable. But sometimes I think we can lose that image of sufficiency, of enoughness, even in our religious community. We have big appetites here at West, and we often fill them. And I don't just mean at our potlucks, although we all know there will never be a party where there is not enough food. We have big appetites for rich, vibrant programming, for full and energetic platform services, for well-run committees and efficient congregational work. And often, we have all those things. Sometimes, though, we have different experiences. 
We have classes that for whatever reason don't fill. We have Sundays with light attendance. We have social justice actions that don't pull in the numbers we had hoped for. We question sometimes, I think, these less than perfect moments, worrying that our expenditure of time and energy just wasn't worth it. What I'm wondering today is what it would mean if we approached our religious life together with that sense of enoughness, of sufficiency, that can make such a difference in our personal lives. I had an experience a couple weeks ago that gave me a chance to see what this might look like. I offered a class on how to talk about ethical culture, a kind of primer on explaining to your neighbor and your coworker what it is that you do on Sunday morning. We hadn't had many sign-ups, and by the end of the day, I was feeling a little down. One of the three people who had signed up turned out to be sick, and I thought, better to just cancel the class and call it a night. And that is just what I was going to do when in came the other two people who were signed up for the class. I started to tell them about my plans to cancel, but I figured I might as well invite them into my office to talk for just a few minutes. We started a conversation, and they shared their thoughts on the topic and what had drawn them to come that night. We didn't talk for the whole two hours scheduled, but we shared some great ideas. It wasn't the robust, full class I had been planning on and hoping for, but that night, it was enough. Now, here's my caveat. Sometimes it does make sense to cancel classes, and it always makes sense to RSVP early so we know who might be coming. And sometimes, or perhaps often, we do, and we should, make the phone calls that get people out for important events. I love that we are a community with big appetites, big dreams, big hopes, partly because it is only by carrying those big hopes that we can live into them. I certainly don't want to see us settle into some kind of complacency. But I do wonder what would happen how we would feel if we approached our life together with a broader sense of enoughness. If even while we planned our programming to attract as many people as possible, we also saw the value in the small group now and then, the intimacy possible in the poorly attended class. I wonder if sometimes we wouldn't be surprised to find that we actually found ourselves with a little more energy, a little more excitement, a little more generosity, that what we find here and what we bring here, even while we work for and dream of more, is still enough, just as it is. And in embracing that enoughness, perhaps we can get to a sense of true abundance, true sufficiency, in our own lives as well. To a reframing of the conversation from all we have to give up to create a sustainable world, to all we have the chance to experience and to love by making choices that feel right and good and joyful. As we welcome new members at the end of our platform service today, we have the chance to remember what it is that drew us here. Although we all look for different things in a religious community, 
I imagine that each person who is recognized this morning has found something here that helps them to feel that their life is enough or close to it. Perhaps it's a sense of fellowship, of extended family. Perhaps it's the hope of creating justice in the world. Perhaps it's the chance to celebrate the turning of the year with song and festival. Perhaps it's an hour a week with nothing to do but think and feel, sit in silence and wonder about the world. Whatever you find here, I hope it helps you to know that this life, this moment, is enough.